Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we are going to talk about what we do now that the elections are over in Canada. We just had a federal election and people are processing the implications of it. And so, Aaron, I'd love to hear from you and I'm sure our listeners as well. What were your initial high level thoughts about what you, when you heard the results? Well, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't depressed. Um, nothing really changed. Canadians woke up the next day with a parliamentary configuration, very much like the one we had a couple of days before. So, um, it, you know, I, I think a lot of folks were were hoping for some radical, revolutionary change in our parliament, and obviously, Canadians uh, decided, as a whole, you know, within our electoral process, to grant Justin Trudeau another minority government. And if you're an American listener, the way that works in Canada is we we elect. 300 and some odd members of parliament and they're currently representing five different political parties. The political party that has the most elected representatives, their leader becomes our prime minister. And if their leader has less than half of the total seats in our parliament, then that's a minority government, which means he or she is vulnerable to being overthrown by the rest of the uh, House of Commons if they choose to gang up against them in a vote of non-confidence, or if they have more than fifty percent, then they can, you know, have a, a a more lengthy term and kind of do whatever they want. So, a minority parliament is less stable for the government, but it also means they can't do as many things as they otherwise might want to do. So uh, I, I think most people would probably agree with me that given the results, it, uh, it was a complete waste of, of money. Uh, you know, the government spent 600 and some odd million dollars on the election. And it was a pretty short campaign, about a month long or so, a little more than a month. And now they're offering a hundred or sorry, $1 billion for, for VAX passes. So they, they have a lot of money to spend on elections and VAX passes that really don't amount to much. In fact, one, one interesting thing, I was talking to a medical friend and I asked how much does it cost for an ICU bed in our province? And he says it costs about $3,500 a day to operate. Well, the average person stays in the ICU between five and 19 days. So if we just kind of go with the median, that means the average person's there around 12 days. So that costs the taxpayer $42,000 for one ICU um, bed uh, to, to care for a person for the 12 day period. Well, I mean, you could, you could have 10,000 people at $42,000 and you know it would cost the taxpayer 420 million dollars which is less than it cost the election i mean you could basically 
care for a lot of people. Now I know there's other mitigating factors, there's aftercare, there's, there's other expenses to, to caring for people. But the point is, is if we re- if we were really concerned about medical capacity and we have the money to spend $600 million on an election and another billion dollars distributed to the provinces for vaccine passport systems, then we have more money than you could possibly imagine to build ICU beds and to care for people and to train people up. But instead, what we're doing in our hospitals is we're firing and laying off hundreds of employees that previously were healthcare heroes and healthcare experts and maybe even had the bumper sticker to prove it. We're firing them because they won't follow the the narrative. So th- that's sort of my, my high-level response. Nothing changed. I'm not surprised. And it was a complete waste of time. In many respects, though, uh, we also can find some encouragement in the fact that while Trudeau won the election, he did not win the purpose for the election. Mm-hmm. He did not win the majority government that he called the election to win. And we also saw a significant increase in voters from all parties turning to the People's Party of Canada, to the Christian Heritage Party. These are two of the more well-known parties, especially the PPC, that um, are – most opposed to vaccine passports and medical coercion. So if you happen to be uh, the kind of person that values freedom, then I suppose you're probably likely to have found some encouragement, at least in the fact that there was an increase in the popular vote uh, directed toward parties like that. Mm-hmm. Now, would you say that Trudeau's re-election is the worst possible outcome for Christians do you think there's a silver lining to this or what would you say? It's definitely not the worst possible outcome. In fact, I mean, the best possible outcome would have been to have a majority government that valued freedom and liberty and Christian values and mm-hmm. brought radical revolution and <laughs> hope and freedom to our country and would be part of, you know, a whole reformation within w- Canada and Western culture, but I don't think any of us were expecting that. Um, I think his reelection, if you if you think short term, for many people who are Christians who have seen the liberals' attacks on the church, the supremacy of Christ, you've seen their radical abortion agenda, their radical medical assistance and suicide uh, agenda, you've seen their radical L. LBGTQ agenda. You've seen their radical uh, agenda for forcing the sex ed curriculums across the country politically and mm-hmm. uh, provincially and federally. For for many, it's like, oh man, anything but Trudeau, right? I, I don't think that's that was wise um, for people to vote that way or to think that way. And there's there's a few reasons for it. What we've seen, we got to think big. We got to think big picture and long term. Not just emotionally. So what what I think has happened in Canadian politics over the last 40, 50 years is that we we tend to elect a liberal government, uh, more of a left-leaning government, and they enact policies that take the country to the left. And then we get fed up with that and we elect a conservative government. And what most conservative governments do, with the exception of maybe the Reform Party years ago, is they, they tap the brake and they sort of slow down the, the, the movement to the left. But in order to get the left-leaning voters, they they kind of 
either stay where the lefties have left us mm-hmm. or um, maybe even take it a little bit further to the left, but they don't take it to the right. And then after people get sick and tired of the conservatives, they elect, reelect the libs. The libs take it to the left. The conservatives get back in. They hit the brake. The libs take it to the left. The conservatives hit the brake. So what we've seen is uh, parties that call themselves conservative, whether it's the progressive conservative provincially or um, the uh, United United Conservatives out west or the conservatives federally, they're all way left of where left-leaning politicians were 30 years ago. Hmm. So we now have, for example, Aaron O'Toole is more left than, and he's a conservative politician, he's way more left than the liberal politicians of the 1980s or 1990s, for example. And in fact, historically, liberalism was what most people would have voted for because liberalism wasn't the kind of liberal ideology that we see today. Like classical liberals valued freedom and liberty and and these Mm -hmm. sorts of things. They were sort of the centrist party of our country. But the, the liberals have gone way left. The conservatives have followed hot in their heels. So even as you compare, let's say, Trudeau and O'Toole's election platforms in the last election, they weren't substantively different. They were they were essentially, you know, two different looking faces representing the same ideology. So unless you have uh, an actual reformation of the political system and you have parties step up that are liberty minded, that are uh, interested in uh, you know historical Western morals, which are Christian morals, in fact, based on God's law. There, there really isn't much of a difference. Uh, hitting the pause button for a little while by electing, let's say, a more conservative government might actually be the worst case scenario because everyone just sort of lets their guard down, and the next time it goes mm-hmm. further to the left. I also think spiritually that God is judging our nation. And I don't think that God has finished judging our nation. You know, as a nation, uh, we, we actually don't deserve any better than this. Until this nation repents, we deserve to be dragged down deeper and deeper into a moral abyss. That doesn't mean that individuals deserve it because many people are righteous and have stood up and done the right thing. But um, I, I believe that our country needs to take more of a beating. Uh, we need... We need people like Trudeau in government to destroy the country further. And until people really understand fully that they're living in an absolute destruction, they're, they're not going to rise up, they're not going to stand up, and they're certainly not going to turn to God. Mm-hmm. So, we, you know, we don't, we don't trust in princes and chariots yep. to fix everything, but we, we do certainly see the value of, of righteous politicians. Um, so I, I, I think this is actually, in, through spiritual eyes, probably a good thing. Because God, for God to be acknowledged as the God and creator and ruler that he is, uh, people need need to be punished a little bit more. And um, people like Justin Trudeau will punish our country. They will destroy our country. There's, there's no question about it. They'll destroy our country. And maybe that needs to happen before a true revival can can uh, you know step, step forward or, or, or sort of break out. If we just vote for compromise, then... Uh, we're essentially voting for for um, a process that just delays the inevitable. We have to see substantive transfer. If we're just talking politically, mm-hmm. and again, politics isn't the solution to everything, but it's just one part of it. 
if we don't see substantive transformation in the political system, then the country will just continue to erode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was talking to you, I think about this this week about this a little bit, reading through first and second Kings and you read about the good kings of Israel, which aren't many, or Judah, uh, and the bad kings. And, you know, it seems that the people are continually in a state of rebellion. They get a good king. So a good king is beneficial. They tear down the high places. That's a good thing. But ultimately, if the people return to their ways, or if the next king gets in, God continues to uh, bring judgment upon the people, right? And uh, Yeah, so what we don't want, we don't just want two years or four more years of, of a break or mm-hmm. a reprieve. We need to get off the merry-go-round. That's right. And what we've been doing is going around and around and around and around, essentially voting for the same policies over and over again. Um, well, I shouldn't even say that because we're voting for the same ideologies over and over again, but they're sort of getting worse and worse and worse or more extreme every time. And we just keep rationalizing it. Well, you know, should I vote for the devil or his head demon? And, you know, at some point you should be voting for neither of them. So um, this is the this is the problem people find themselves in. I understand there's a, we have to balance a principled approach with a pragmatic approach. For example, if, you know, we have many Christians that are ex- very, very principled. So they would say things like, well, the only thing that I'm, I'm concerned about is voting for um, a party that's, um, you know, going to immediately ban abortion. Okay, well, I, I get that on a principled level because abortion is admittedly the, the most heinous evil in our country. And I understand that. But if you've been doing that for 50 years and you see no result, you, what you'd be wise to do is think is think a little bit like an incrementalist. So um, incrementalism in politics is strategically thinking a little bit more long-term about how you move a country in that direction. So if you've been trying for, let's say, for 50 years to take the most highest principled approach possible without any pragmatic considerations whatsoever because you believe pragmatism is, you know, woefully wrong, but you haven't saved one baby's life in the process, you need to reevaluate your your approach. And so what incrementalism does is it says, okay, um, politics isn't going to fix this. We're going to engage in educational campaigns. Uh, we're going to engage in social media campaigns. We're going to um, engage in political campaigns, municipally, provincially, and federally to try to bring about change. And we're going to try to move the country in a direction. So hopefully in a shorter period of time, we actually have victory mm-hmm. on the other side. So I'm not naive enough to think that you know, we're going to elect some sort of a truly Christian government anytime soon that blesses both Christians and non-Christians. But we have to at least try to move the uh, ball forward. And what Christians have done for the most part instead is they've gone to one side or the other. They voted for the lesser of two evils uh, or they voted strictly on principle and neither of those strategies has proven itself to work. Mm -hmm. And you can blame churches for that. You can blame pastors for that. You can blame the devil for that. You can blame whatever you want for that. But we have to really have a conversation, a serious conversation about our strategy. Christians aren't good strategists for the most part. Mm -hmm. Uh, We, we, we can at times be so idealistic that we're useless uh, we can be so, you know, heavenly minded as they say that we're no earthly value. 
We don't always understand the political structures that we're in. We don't understand the dynamics that are going on around us. We can live our lives in our own little echo chambers, just listening to people that affirm us. And, and we end up being ostracized or become less and less effective. And then, you know, in desperation, we just say, well, that's not the sovereign plan of God or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, God obviously is sovereign over all things, but God prefers to use sharp tools rather than dull tools. And sharp tools are the ones that tend to reap more of a harvest. So why would we not want to be as strategic and thoughtful and deliberate as possible in bringing about substantive change? In order to do that, one of the things we need to move beyond is the moment. Mm-hmm. We need to think big picture, long-term, worldview issues. We need to involve ourselves in cultural apologetics and not just reduce everything down to, well, if we can get the if we get the right party into office to vote in favor of this law, then everything's going to be fixed. No, it won't. Because the next next election cycle, they'll be kicked out and some other tyrant will get in. So we have to learn to think bigger picture. We need to be cultural missionaries. That's part and parcel of the gospel call. But I, I'd like to talk about that a little bit more momentarily. Yeah. And I have a feeling this next question, you're going to kind of, I, I know where it's probably going to go, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So, um, you know, I know you've gotten these kind of messages from folks. I've gotten these messages where they say, you know, pray and trust or just preach the gospel. Like, let's not get involved in politics. Or I saw one pastor posting basically saying politics changes nothing. Christians, your mission's still the same, like that kind of thing. What's your, what do you have to say about that? Yeah. So we'll have people say, you know, we don't have time for politics because we should be preaching the gospel. So every minute we spend on politics or campaigning or social media stuff is one minute that we could have been using to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Frankly, this is borderline false teaching because what it reveals is a very truncated, unbiblical view of the gospel. So many, many folks are raised thinking that the gospel message and evangelism is simply meeting people and saying, you're a sinner. You deserve to be damned. You cannot work your way into heaven by any of your effort. Jesus Christ is the perfect God man who came into this world, died for your sins. He was resurrected on the third day, conquering death. And you need to trust in him and you need to trust in him alone for your salvation. And if you trust in him alone for your salvation, then you will inherit eternal life and you'll be spiritually reborn. And now, no matter what happens in this hellish world, you will be in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. Now, everything that I just said is true, but that is not the full extent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want want to repeat that. That is not the full extent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look at scripture, the gospel starts in Genesis. It is the declaration that the true and living God is the king. He's the Lord over heaven and earth. He created the heavens and the earth and everything under them. He is absolute king over all things. And part of our responsibility as image bearers is to represent his dominion to represent his rulership within creation, to, to bring, to, when it talks about subduing the world, it's to bring the world under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so as an image bearer of God, yes, I'm very concerned about helping people to understand the divine transaction needs to take place, whereby they their, their sins are forgiven and they, they receive new life in Christ. But 
the gospel message is not just getting people off of a sin-sick world into heaven. The, The prophets time and time again call God's people to stand up against injustice, to feed the widow and the orphan. This is not a social gospel. This is a biblical gospel. The gospel message is the lordship of Christ over all the institutions. It's the lordship of Christ over your marriage. When I counsel a couple to surrender themselves to Christ and actually display kingdom values in their marriage, I'm preaching the gospel to them. When we bring kingdom values to bear on families, we're preaching the gospel. When we declare the absolute lordship of Christ over the worship and ministry of the church, we're declaring the gospel. When we call kings and queens to acknowledge the supremacy of God, the kingship of Christ over all of creation, we are declaring the gospel. So when we feed the poor, when we stand up against injustice, we're declaring the gospel. This is the gospel message. And therefore, whenever we call out injustice, whenever we point people to the Lordship of Christ, whenever we declare the the message of spiritual rebirth in Jesus, this is all part and parcel of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So yes, we we pray, Chris, and we, we pray for revival, we pray for lost souls, we preach the salvation message. But if you think the salvation message is the full extent of the gospel, you have a deficient and actually unbiblical worldview. And this is, again, largely affected by a truncated view of the gospel. It's like you're looking at the trunk, you're not looking at the branches. Uh, The gospel, again, is tied to the lordship of Christ over all things in the now and in the not yet. So it's not just about eternal life. So I would say then that when we engage in um, any process, any campaign, any conversation that is seeking to bring the, 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 the core message of Scripture, which is the lordship of Christ over all, the kingdom message, to bear on any topic, including elections, we are engaged in gospel ministry. So elections by themselves don't fix the world's problems. We know that. We know, we know they don't fix the world's problems. But uh, elections and other things, i.e., more biblical marriages, biblical principles for raising children, for education, for medicine, for science, for jurisprudence, all these sorts of things. They don't solve sin, but they restrain evil by bringing to bear on those institutions and cultural constructs the lordship of Jesus Christ and all the principles and virtues and claims of Christ in all spheres of culture. So, um, again, the gospel message is not just fire insurance from hell. It's not just, uh, don't worry about it here and now. Just let the world go to hell in a handbasket. Just get yourself to heaven. Get as many people to. This, this has been preached and preached and preached and preached so much in the past hundred years that Christians think this is the New Testament message. And when you read the New Testament message and the whole of Scripture, you'll find that Jesus is, is, is challenging political systems He's, he's calling out the abuse of authority. He's uh, seeking to reconcile slaves and masters. He's feeding the sick. He's feeding the poor. These aren't all just setups or uh, you know, precursory, uh, precursory conversations to getting to the point, which is how to get to heaven. 
this is all part of the gospel message. I mean, study the life of Jesus. You study the life of Jesus. He's not just out there, hey, I want to tell you about justification by grace through faith alone and how you can be forgiven of your sins and get to heaven. That obviously comes comes in in its core, but it's not all that Jesus talks about. So that would be my response to those that have what I would say is a limited view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting, just as you make those comments, many, many people take great concern for worldly issues in their own small sphere. So if their roof needs replacing on their home, they replace their roof. Uh, but I think when it comes to politics, probably the mindset of many Christians is, I'm just a splash in the ocean. I'm like a drip in the ocean. I'm not making a difference. So why waste my time there? Do you think that's true? Do you think political change is possible? Will it actually fix things? Does our influence matter? Um, Maybe you could speak to those. Oh, well, obviously the Lord provides each person with a different amount of influence. And influence is given based upon your age, your status in society, your intellect, your verbal skills, your kinesthetic skills, um, maybe what family you're born into, whatever it might be, good or bad, uh, everyone is stewarded a different degree of influence. So you could have a person that's very influential, but very incompetent. And you could have a person that's highly competent that's not as influential. It just is what it is. You can expand your influence, of course, or maximize would be a better way of putting it, your influence by fully living out your calling, by taking all the time, talents, treasures the Lord has given to you and using them in a very focused way to bring about change in your marriage, your family, schools, etc. <clears throat> and then, of course, we each have different spheres of influence that we live within based upon our educational backgrounds, our skill sets, et cetera. So I, I don't think I have a you know a great deal of influence in rural Zimbabwe because I don't live there. You know, geography hinders that. But I think I have a degree of influence, maybe not a great degree, but a degree of influence in Windsor, Ontario, and Ontario and Canada, maybe in the Western world, uh, to some degree. So sometimes I'll hear people tell me things and I'm like, where'd you hear that? Or I heard it from a friend of a friend. I'm like, yeah, I told them that. So our words travel, our ideas travel. We, um, we, we, we can't fully quantify or measure the degree of influence we'll have within this world, but we all have influence. And instead of thinking yourself as just, you know, a drop in the ocean, someone's influencing someone out there. Mm-hmm. And we're either going to allow for, a very small, limited number of people to do all the influencing, or we're going to influence individually and collectively. So I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time trying to quantify the amount of influence we have, do the right thing, and allow God to use your influence however he sees fit. And some of it you'll probably never really be aware of. Um, But in terms of political change, First of all, there, there is a biblical place for politics. There's a biblical place for government. You know, Romans 13, which is often talked about, it bestows upon the government, the sword, responsibility to punish criminal behavior as defined by God's word and to reward righteousness as defined by God's word. 
So there's a there's a role for government, and we are to surrender ourselves to the government in so far as they exercise and steward their authorities. Now, little sidebar: people need to be reminded in countries like Canada that we're governed, we're not ruled, so we don't have a king. So in our political system, we don't have a a, a king. We don't have a uh, a dictator, or at least we shouldn't, telling us what to do. So our system actually invites opposition and pushback and elections and all that sort of thing. So we ha- we have these at our disposal. We have these tools, these constructs, these systems at our disposal. So why not use them? But I don't think political change is the answer to all things. I think it's just a very small piece of the pie. Um, we got here by lies. We're going to get out of it by truth. And that means that we need to think long-term about how to educate our people and people around us on a truly biblical worldview. People need a a better understanding of biblical economics, biblical authority, the role of the church. And our job is to take the Bible and as it speaks to these issues— preach them to our children, preach them in our educational institutions, bring them to bear on our vocations, and over time affect the worldview that dominates Western culture, which is largely based upon lies and falsehoods and half-truths. So education is really important. And one of the reasons why we do this podcast is to educate people, to get them thinking about what's going on in their lives. So some folks are probably listening to this podcast and they're they're driving someplace. And they're like, I got to fill some time. I'm, I'm going to listen to a podcast or they're, they're out for a run or they're on the assembly line or they're uh, you know, chilling out in the evening after a hard day's work. And there's a certain sense in which this podcast might just sort of fill the time or be you know, mentally interesting. But that's not, that's not the end goal of this. We want to educate so that you can then take any wisdom that I might have and educate others. And then the people that hear that will educate others. And we're, we're passing on this information. But there's other things we can do. We can get involved in social institutions. Like, why aren't more Christians lining up to get on the Children's Aid Society boards? You can do that. Why aren't more Christians lining up to get on the hospital boards? Why aren't more Christians lining up to get on the school boards? I would encourage those of you that maybe have a little bit of a background or interest in that, do a little research and get on those boards. Don't wait for someone to tap you on the shoulder. Get on those boards. You can bring substantive, meaningful change to these quote-unquote institutions that affect culture by getting involved in these boards. Let's take all the energy that was invested in the federal election campaign and just roll it right over into the provincial campaign Mm -hmm. or into a local state campaign. Let's take all of that energy and roll it forward into a municipal campaign. So for example, in my province, we're going to, we have, uh, we had the federal election in September of 2021. We will have presumably a provincial election in June of 2022. And in October of 2022, we'll have our municipal election. So in about 13 months, we're going to be voting for every level of government. Well, instead of throwing up our hands, oh, just roll it forward, roll it forward. Some of you should seriously consider, and I've encouraged some of my 
choice selections to do this, running for office. Like go start attending the, the town council meetings in your area. Just kind of observe. It's not, it's not rocket science. There's average people making decisions for you. Get in, if you're, if you're reasonably articulate, you're, uh, you have a, a, a broad network of friends uh, and family members and you have a bit of time, you should consider running for, for office or at least asking a friend to and getting behind their campaign. These are ways we can, we can give, bring substantive change to uh, the world around us. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you, um, we've had a lot of people, as they think about the political direction of our country, they're wondering, do I leave? <laughs> do I stay and fight? What's your wisdom to them? Mm -hmm. Well, there's no right or wrong to that. I think each person needs to decide that in his own heart in light of his own circumstances. But the Bible, a couple of passages that I think are interesting, and I've, I've mentioned these before, one would be Matthew 10, which is sort of like if, if you're preaching the gospel and they don't accept you in one town, flee to the next. You're fleeing persecution there as well. So there, there is a certain sense in scripture in which if you think a village or an area is just done, there, there's no response, there's no fruit, it might be a good time to to move on because you're kind of just wasting your time spinning your wheels. If the, if there's no fruit to be picked, go to an orchard where there's fruit to be picked, right? You don't go apple picking with your family, show up to an orchard with no fruit and say, well, we're going to go apple picking kids. But dad, there's no apples. Oh, well, we're going to try anyway because it says there, it's an apple orchard. You go to an apple orchard where there's apples to be picked. So I get that. But that doesn't fully apply to our situation because – you know, we're bearing a ton of spiritual fruit. And in many respects, this is like the best time to be in Christian ministry because we're bearing, we're bearing much more fruit in an environment like this, presumably than when, if you're in an environment that's more friendly or more neutral or ambivalent to Christian values, it might make you feel more comfortable, but you're not bearing as much fruit because people tend to lean into spiritual things when they realize that the world around them is falling apart. And but it's not bad if you assess and you're like, yeah, I, I just feel my ministry here is done. Move, and there's different movements. There's a some sort of a new movement for people to move to New Brunswick. There's a website like something like Free New Brunswick or Colonize New Brunswick or whatever. I get that. Um, I I think there's some wisdom in strategically thinking about where you live. So, for example, if you know if you look at the elections and you say, okay, well. Our area is deeply red or deeply orange. Um, then you should stay there if you are prepared to be a cultural missionary in a very antagonistic context. And some people are called to that. But if your circumstances are such that you're like, no, I, I'm kind of looking at the, the voting maps, and I noticed in this area, this area, there's there's people that are more conservatively minded. So they tend to be, you know, maybe thinking more about the Christian Heritage Party, the PPC, the conservatives, depending on who's representing you. Those might be better areas to relocate. Um, but that doesn't mean it's right or wrong for you to do that. And I mean, part of me would like to just call all Christians just to pick an area and we all just move there and we form beachheads. And I do think there's some wisdom to that. 
that we need to consider. But then I also think about Paul's words in Philippians 1, where he's like, yeah, I'd kind of like to just go to heaven, but it's better for me to stay for the sake of the church. So if you're bearing fruit where you're planted and you, you see yourself as having uh, influence over people in a very profound way, um, you know, it's probably better to stay put. And that's kind of where I'm at. Like humanly, I'd like to run off to heaven, ideally right now. Second best choice would be some very peaceful Christianized place in the world where I can, you know, farm and preach and go for a bike ride. No one harasses me and, you know, that'd be great. But I planted this church because I see myself fundamentally as a missionary. And, um, you know, we have a lot of people here and a lot of people coming here. And I think those numbers are going to continue to grow. And then the, the substantive fruit being born of that mm-hmm. is a beautiful thing. So what I would encourage people to think about is kind of just make that decision sooner than later. Because if you just sort of back and forth, back and forth, go, stay, go, stay, move, stay, move, stay, it's it's hard. First of all, other people aren't going to trust you to make decisions on their behalf. And secondly, you're just going to kind of live in this perpetual state of fear. So make a decision. If you're going to leave, leave. If you're going to stay, stay. And the pluses and minuses of that, you need to be prepared to bear with. And there's pluses and minuses to both. So that's that's kind of where I'm at. And that's mm-hmm. the end result of months of thinking about it. So, you know, there may be other things that come to bear in my thinking in the future, but that's kind of where I'm at right mm-hmm. now. I'm excited, actually, Chris, about what's going on in our church and in our world. It's very hard humanly to see all this, but it's a very exciting time to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Now, one issue I know many people have uh, been talking about back and forth, especially here in Ontario, because just yesterday the vaccine passports were rolled out. Uh, and so tell me, they were a big, uh, well, the vax passes we know were a big election issue. So what do you think about them slash where do you think the vax passports lead? Well, first of all, they're entirely immoral. Uh, you know, they, they violate multiple scriptural principles. Uh, let me just throw out a few. Um, they, they violate the biblical command and call for people to, to work and to provide for their family because they literally hinder people unnecessarily from, from being able to work. They won't stop the spread of the virus. Um, two weeks to flatten the curve didn't, three lockdowns didn't, double masking didn't do it, two shots of COVID vaccines didn't do it. These won't work either because they're not medicine. They're not medicine. People need to understand there's a difference between medicine and public health protocols. Medicine is when you sit down with your doctor and he analyzes and assesses your circumstances and prescribes a course of treatment. These are carte blanche, politically driven um, public health protocols that very clearly, because we see politicians flip-flopping on it and implementing them differently, they're driven by political considerations. They're, if you have cancer and you get chemotherapy, it's not driven by politics, it's driven by the science and medicine of chemotherapy in light of your body and your conditions and how they've assessed you. If you're getting a heart transplant, they're going to look at your heart, your circumstances, and they're going to treat you accordingly. It's not just, we're going to throw out these uh, you know, random protocols to hope to stop the virus. The virus won't be stopped, by the way. Save this clip, make a little recording of it, save this podcast. We will never, ever stop this virus 
through these public health protocols. It's not going to happen. The Bible's very clear on this. The, the way forward, it's very simple. If I was a chief medical officer of Ontario, it'd be very simple. We, we quarantine the sick. We implement a targeted protection plan for those that are especially vulnerable. We um, encourage people to follow biblical laws in terms of personal hygiene. And we move forward with life, knowing that there's risk and reward to being around other human beings. And as people get sick, we treat them, period. Simple as that. And what, what, what would happen over time is if you want to bring science to bear and there's maybe some valid vaccines or medicine to bring to bear on it, fine. But you don't do a one-size-fits-all approach. We know, we know without any doubt that multiple people have died and been severely affected by these vaccinations. Now, it is a small number compared to the number that have been vaccinated. But this is where the one-size-fits-all approach takes place. We know this. We, we know, based on what's happening in Israel, that natural immunity is far more effective than the vaccines. We know this. Um, whenever PhDs in biology, epidemiologists, physicians speak out, they're considered fringe and they're sidelined. Um, there's all sorts of problems with this approach. But fundamentally, Vax passports, they're not going to fix anything. In fact, here's what's going to happen. And, and I'm not into fear-mongering, but I, I have a pretty good idea about where this is leading. So I, I'm in groups. I'm, I'm discussing these things with, with all sorts of people all the time. And um, Vax passports, these health passes, aren't going to end with COVID-19 vaccinations. And they're not going to end with being blocked from going to Tim Hortons or, you know, the gym. They will be expanded. Guaranteed they'll be expanded. So mortgage lenders are already talking about not providing mortgages to people who aren't vaccinated because their employment's at risk. Uh, real estate boards, even today, are having conversations about uh, whether realtors even want to show houses to people who aren't vaccinated. So you see how this starts to affect a lot of other aspects of your life. We have lots of discussions taking place about carbon passes. I mean, this is why we have these paper copies. Once the digital copies are in place, they're, they're going to they're be staying around for a long, long time. For sure, they're going to stay around for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, where we can only guess, you know, a lot of the stuff we can only guess at, but there's already discussions taking place about tying it into carbon emissions. So Chris, you know, you're, you're killing the planet by your existence. And, um, you know, maybe we need to put some public health protocols on you. After all, you need to love your neighbor, Chris, mm -hmm. you need to do the right thing. Um, you know, you're, you're a burden on the medical system and, uh, you know, healthcare workers who are heroes, they're taking care of you. So do the right thing. Um, Stay home for three months because you've already burned up your allowable carbon points. I was talking to a medical professional yesterday. Um, he's fairly certain that uh, they're going to start limiting access to grocery stores for unvaccinated people. So the, there might be times during the day where you can get in and maybe only certain aisles you can go down. So you're going to get limited and limit. You're going to be squeezed tighter and tighter. 
And here's what's interesting. So if you asked people a year ago, would you support vaccine passports to get into a gym? Nobody would have said that's a good idea. But now the majority of people seem to think it's okay or they're, they're, they're silent about it. Now, if you were to ask people today, would you feel comfortable if the health unit decided to show up to your house, grab you, uh, restrain you using experts who trained in restraint techniques and forcibly vaccinate you and then vaccinate all your kids? Would you feel comfortable with that? Not at all. Yeah. And I think most people would say no. But you know what? Every single argument used to validate vaccine passports transfers right over into that. Mm -hmm. Well, you got to love your neighbor. Well, it's the right thing to do. Well, you were a drain on the system. Well, you're a conspiracy theorist, on and on and on. So let's not, when we allow bad arguments, bad reasons to justify bad public health decisions, those bad reasons will be trans transferred into future decisions that are even more mm -hmm. tyrannical. Guaranteed. That's how it goes. And it's unfortunate that most people are aren't educated enough and aren't smart enough to see that. And uh, of course our audience accepted, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but um, people are just going to kind of go along with this and it's, it's going to lead to some dar very dark places. By the way, I have huge respect. I have huge respect for um, situations within which vaccinated and unvaccinated people stand together on these issues mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I was talking to a dear friend who said, you know, I was called by some friends and they said, hey, let, let's go out for, for dinner. And he said, um, no, I don't, I don't want to do that because they require vaccine passports now. And his friend's like, well, yeah, but you're, you're double vaxxed. He's like, yeah, so what? But I'm not going to participate in this, in this uh, injustice. So I'm not going. I'll do takeout, but I'm not going. And then another friend asked him the same question, same response. So that's a principled response. Mm -hmm. You see, what, what's going to happen is even in the Christian church, there's going to be division because people that have been double vaxxed will take advantage. Some of them will take advantage of the vaccine passports because, hey, I'm free and clear. I can do what I want. But they're actually contributing to something that's immoral. Mm -hmm. We have a moral responsibility, vaccinated, unvaccinated, to stand up against these things. And we're, we're going to hear people say things like, because I've already heard it, oh, well, don't, don't punish the business owners. You know, they, they can't help it, right? Well, uh, yes, they can. They can say no. And you can say no. And collectively, we can say no. We're, we're prepared to lose our jobs, lose our livelihood, or be incarcerated on principle. We will not be part of coercive medicine. It's all illegal. It's still illegal, but even if it was legal, it's still wrong. Uh we will not be part of this. And if you don't take that stance, I can guarantee you, okay, last year they came after me for opening my church. Now they're coming after my people that aren't vaccinated. And then they will come after my people that are vaccinated. It's not going to stop because this is what statist governments do. When they have power, they do not relinquish it. They do not give it back. They will apply the powers that you have awarded them because you either award them power by your submission or you refuse them that power by, by not complying. They will use the power that you give them by your submission against you. Right now, you might be free and clear, but they will come up with some way and some means to use it against you. And if you're 
let's say, vaccinated and you don't stand up with those that aren't vaccinated, then when they come after you, do you think everyone else is going to stand up for you? They're going to be like, no, you, you, you played Judas. You abandoned us in our time of need. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's time for you to suffer. That's going to be human nature. It's not right, but that's human nature. So we have to take a principled stance. And the way to do that, we're not supporting businesses that are implementing vax passports. We are supporting businesses that are uh, supporting freedom of conscience in this regard. And um, we will continue to push back. We will continue to defend our people. We will defend our property. We will defend our families. And of course, most importantly, we will defend the Lordship of Christ over his church. And we're not gonna participate in discrimination and medical apartheid by a bunch of political fools trying to score political brownie points by putting more protocols into place, which they previously said they wouldn't because they think that's going to score them political brownie po- or brownie points with the all-knowing science table. We're not going to do that. We're not going to play those games. It's wrong. Mm-hmm. And you heard it here. <laughs> um, okay, some immediate steps that people can take. I know last week, last week you shared a few, and I think they were helpful. People like tangible takeaways. So do you have a couple of tangible takeaways for for our listeners? Yeah. Well, sometimes it's worth repeating yourself just to kind of drive, drive the nail a little deeper um, into people's minds. So I I think there's, uh, we want to be praying. We, we want to be drawing close to the Lord. um, These sorts of things um, being gracious, where we can be thanking politicians when they do the right thing, um, but also calling them out when they tell us to do the right thing, but they're actually doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's not let's not allow politicians to pretend they are our pastors and priests and moral to, moral arbiters. They're not. Um, but just very practically, some things for people to think about um, when when you're in circumstances where your income's under threat. You know, you learn lessons. And I've been encouraging people to diversify their income, for example, because a lot of a lot of what's going on with, when they're finding you, what they're doing is they're attacking your income. They're, they're trying to use financial leverage to get you to do what they want. When they're threatening to take your jobs away and not pay you, it's finances are huge, right? Like people, people can put up with name calling, but if they take your paycheck away, people really feel quite desperate. So diversifying your income is really important. And if you haven't done that already, um, it's, it's, it's wise for you to think about that. So starting online businesses, um, maybe being a delivery driver, getting involved in trades or occupations, even if it's on the side that tend not to care about such matters, you know, a heavy machinery um, operator or something like that, um, renting out space in your home, um, maybe renting out your garage for storage, um, babysitting, you know, there's, there's a lot of things you can do to sort of generate a little more income than, cause here's the thing. Most people, most people in the last hundred years have made a huge mistake and now we know it. We think the choice jobs, the best jobs are a government jobs or B working for big corporations. Mm-hmm. Now we realize, uh Oh, these are the worst jobs because now you're completely subject to their course of techniques we need more Christians to start their own businesses. So if you, if you have the capacity to start a business in your area of expertise, you should start one of those pretty soon. And then you should exclusively employ uh, good people that hold your worldview in order to protect them and bless them and for them to be a blessing to 
to your company. So think about the economic side of things. Um, it's it's not a bad idea if if people have the wherewithal to consider purchasing or moving to more secure properties. Um, if it depends on where you live, there's a lot of variables, but um, you know a lot of people want a little more privacy so they can still have people over or worship in secret or whatever it might be or protect their kids or just kind of fly into the radar. But rural properties can be kind of expensive, but sometimes rural properties have two or three houses on them or they can take another house. So they have a huge house that can be divided. So maybe going in with a family member, a brother, a sister, a friend, someone that you trust and, you know, sharing a property, sharing the resources of that property is, is not a bad idea. That's kind of what people have done throughout history, mm-hmm. but it's just our, you know, in the West, we have such a pioneering mindset, especially in North America, that everyone kind of wants their own postage stamp property. That's another thing to um, consider. Um, also, just make a decision. I'm not going to support businesses that require vaccine passports as much as I possibly can. Um, I'm not going to reveal my status, vaxxed or unvaxxed. It's none of your business. Um, you know, you're not, we don't ask people to get on a scale before they enter the candy shop. Mm-hmm. Say, sorry, you're 400 pounds. You can't come in because, you know, it might cost the system because you're overweight. We don't do that. We don't, um, forbid people from buying cigarettes. We don't forbid people from buying alcohol. We just, we're just targeting this one, one issue, which we now know isn't as deadly as we've been told. Uh, you know, young, healthy people without comorbidities. This is just factual, almost have 0% chance of dying, but we're just throwing all that aside when, and what, what's really sad and manipulative is every once in a while, you'll hear like a young person, um, like a child or something that dies of COVID-19 and, you know, the premier and prime minister are, you know, putting up public statements, get vaccinated. This young person died. Then you're like, um, okay. So did the person had comorbidities? How dare you? How dare you ask? This is a child that died. How disgusting, how, you know, unchristian of you. Well, just a second, just a sec, just settle down for a minute. If the premier is offering me medical advice why wouldn't I ask these questions? Mm-hmm. Or are we just going to be so mindless as a culture that we're driven by, you know, cancel culture or emotions? We're not actually a thinking people anymore. So, you know, if I, if, if I, if I allow myself to be manipulated and scared into things, this, this, this just contributes to mindlessness and the abuse of power. And frankly, it is an abuse of power and it's manipulative and it's deceptive for a prime minister or a premier to get up and and just say, oh, what? this child died, so you have to get vaccinated. That's your moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. With no knowledge, no knowledge of the circumstances, the epidemiology, the medical background of that child, it's wrong. And yet we live in such a mindless culture that Christians, oh, I better, you know, that's that's a bad thing. Pastor Aaron, man, you're not, you're a heart, cold-hearted man, you know, to to, you know, to identify these issues. Folks, I have more kids than most of my listeners and I love children. I wouldn't be in ministry. I mean, you you know how much I love your Mm -hmm. kids, Chris. And, you know, obviously your heart goes out for every person that dies, but, but I, I have the capacity to objectively analyze what I'm being told. And I'm not going to just buy into a lie or a half truth or be manipulated. So we, we, we shouldn't be revealing our status and we shouldn't be bowing down to coercive medical techniques. If someone has studied the evidence and they feel comfortable with the ethics behind it and everything else, 
And by the way, I've been very careful. People have begged me, please do like a definitive podcast telling me whether I should get vaccinated or not. I'm not doing that. I'm hinting, I'm pointing people to, to, to um, you know, some evidences, some things to consider. But uh, I, I don't want to contribute to a mindless culture by just telling you about, you know, this is how you should respond here and this is how you should respond here with no nuances. So um, don't reveal your status. Be prepared to, to um, uh, one, one other point is why are we not, why do we not have a national or even ecclesiastical campaign for people to increase their health? Mm-hmm. So why, why, why are we not, why do we have uh, morbidly obese people telling us to get vaccinated? Mm-hmm. Uh, heading up our hospitals in government. Why do why do we have that? Um, why do we have people um, you know who are running to Tim Hortons for their smile cookies and eat a dozen donuts, telling us to get vaccinated? Where, where's the public campaign saying, "Look, one of the number one comorbidities to succumbing to this virus is your weight," right? Or, or we're not allowed to talk about weight in the church anymore. The Bible says something about gluttony. The Bible says something about your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. Are we forbidden because of cultural mores not to discuss such matters? How about this? How about Christian people lose weight? If you're smoking, stop smoking. If your diet is garbage, how about you clean up your diet? If you really want to protect yourself from succumbing to COVID-19, I think that would be pretty wise because people without comorbidities almost never die of COVID-19. So connect the dots, follow the trail of breadcrumbs. Your physical health is directly tied to how your body is going to respond to a viral threat. So get healthy. Mm-hmm. People running out, you know, that are morbidly obese, smoking, eating donuts for breakfast, getting a vaccine, thinking that that's their Messiah. Well, there's other things you can do too, mm-hmm. or in spite of. So th- these are things for us to consider. You also need to be prepared to defend yourself physically. Now, I'm not I'm not calling for people to take up arms, but there's there's you are morally responsible to physically defend your life and your family. If if it gets bad and people come and they start to attack or coerce, start swinging. And you have the green light to do that. The the biblical ethic of turning the other cheek has nothing to do with self defense. It has to do with personal offense for the sake of the gospel. But we have a responsibility to push back if people use physical force to take our children, take our property. We're going to react. And the government needs to hear that. We are going to react. We're not going to sit back like passive pussycats and allow you to do whatever you want. Our forebears did not do that. Those that went before us and fought in wars did not do that. And we will not allow you to participate in heinous evil just standing on the sidelines. We're going to fight with our words. But if push comes to shove, we're also going to start using our fists as well. And then if you're coerced to work, just show up to work. Let them fire you. Let them fire you. Um, the, the exemptions sometimes work. They sometimes don't. But exemptions are implicitly problematic in that they certainly, um, uh, in a sense, give a tip of, the, tip of the hat to the fact that the norm should be to force vaccinations. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, better to just sort of show up to work and say, I'm working. If you're going to fire me, fire me. And then if you fire me, I'm hiring a lawyer. And then one final thing. Can I give you one more? Yeah, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. (laughs) Start going to a faithful church. Okay, time's up. The timer has clicked off. 
churches that are no, they're not standing up, churches that are not uh, speaking out against this heinous evil uh, are apostate churches and seminaries that are not standing up against this heinous wickedness are apostate seminaries. Uh, they, they're not going to train your, your, your pastors for effective ministry in a difficult world. They may be good at training your pastors in exegesis, but if they can't train someone to actually how to pastor people through a pandemic, how to fight the cultural wars, how to identify clear manipulation and evil, how to speak out against injustice and the abuse of power, these are not the places to send your young men and young women to be trained for ministry. So we need to band together as Christians. If people want to flounder, uh, you know, in, in muddy waters and ambiguity, um, uh, then there will be consequences for that in terms of their spiritual walk. There's, there's no way people who are in pro-lockdown, pro-force vaccination, uh, pro-status churches are really growing spiritually. Okay. Mm. They need to get, get to some, some clear waters, get to some f- fresh waters and, um, sit into the sound of the word of God. There's, there's not a lot, but there's several churches, you know, across our country that are preaching the whole gospel and speaking out against injustice. And we need to support those churches for God's glory, not for the sake of the name or the pastor, the denomination, but for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of our own spiritual health, we need to, we need to get alongside healthy churches and support them. And that's going to mean, by the way, a little bit of compromise because, you know, with so few churches, if you're if you think now that you have the option to pick churches that agree with you on every single point of doctrine and practice, good luck. Um, obviously, you want to pick churches that are steadied on the gospel, but um, when we're at battle, we don't have time to fight all the little tiny uh, disputable issues within the Christian faith. But if a church is heralding the Lordship of Christ and preaches the gospel and obviously his historic Orthodox theology, then I would encourage you to support such churches. Very good. Well, thank you, Aaron. Appreciate this message and uh, time to chat. I just want to remind our listeners we're here. We're heard weekly on CJXC radio, Canada's constant Christian companion at 11 a.m. Tuesdays and 11 p.m. Thursdays. And also that we have our app um, or our podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network's app uh, as we've partnered with them. So you can head over to their website, search it in the app store and download it. And you can find a growing list of podcasts from across North America there. So make sure to subscribe to this podcast, to rate it, to share it on social media and make sure most importantly to tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Roth.